welcome to uh, the latest of the Middle East Centre uh, lectures. Um, it gives me enormous pleasure this evening to introduce to you uh, Professor Roger Owen, who will be talking about the year of Egypt's second revolution, the balance sheet so far. There's something um, very tedious for the, the person who's about, to be, uh, who's about to speak when the person chairing it says, of course the speaker knows, needs no introduction. But I'm sure for most of you here, you know Roger very well indeed through his extraordinary distinguished career uh, as uh, a writer on Middle Eastern economic history, on politics, uh, and on different aspects of the contemporary and the 19th and 20th century uh, Middle East. Um, as you know, he has published extensively, uh, both on economic history, but also, of course, uh, branching out to a very original book on Lord Cromer. And uh, also, I think in April of this year, there'll be uh, his book on the rise and fall of Arab presidents for life, uh, which will be coming out in uh, April in uh, 2012. Of course, within this very understandably distinguished and uh, sparkling career, there is one blemish. Um, and uh, he may not have to answer to history for it, but he certainly has to answer for my long-suffering students, because it was Roger who set me off on the study of the politics of the Middle East as an undergraduate. So he certainly has to answer for that, I'm afraid. But uh, I'm sure you'll forgive him, uh, because he will uh, give us extraordinary good value this evening uh, talking about uh, the uh, year of uh, Egypt's second revolution. Uh, Roger will speak for about 40 minutes or so, and then we have about 40 minutes for uh, questions and uh, discussion. I'll hand the floor over to Roger, but would you prefer to stay there? Well, I would or? prefer to stand, but I don't see how to get that thing out. Is there any way of getting the screen down? Or I don't want to rip it out of its moorings. Can one sort of... Do you think it can it go to the, to the side, side, do you think? That's, that's, that's one. Oh, that's good. Thank Thanks very much. Roger, thank you very much indeed. Uh, thank you all for coming. Um, wave from the back seat. If I don't, you, I can't uh, project. I will do my best. I tend to try and speak to the people in the back row. You can hear me? Very good. Thank you. All right. Uh, thank you very much for this invitation to Fawaz Gergis. Um, LSE has been part of my life for a very long time. I don't think I've ever actually given a formal lecture here, so it's a first for me. Thank you for the invitation, and thank you all for coming. Um, I'll read my title again, The Year of Egypt's Second Revolution, The Balance Sheet So Far. The first revolution that I'm talking about is the one that took place in 1952, Although it was the result of a military coup, it soon turned into something more like a um, uh, more like a traditional revolution, although then turned into a authoritarian dictatorship. But the years after 1952, 53, 54 had something of the revolutionary fervor that one associates with popular revolutions, where people come together in order to. Uh, rejig re the political system to get rid of the old to try and create a new constitutional and democratic order and there was an attempt to uh, produce a constitution in 1954-55 a constitutional commission which was then overruled by President 
um, the late President Nasser. So it has some of the characteristics of a world revolution, although it is now remembered mainly as a revolution against the British rather than a revolution against, um, on behalf of the people. Uh, so first, I think, some definitions. What do I mean by revolution, and why is that a good way of talking about what is sometimes called the Arab Spring? I mean, spring, obviously, because uh, to begin with, the demonstrations were largely peaceful and therefore aping those of um, Eastern Europe in the various velvet springs and things that took place in those parts. But uh, I think it was Amar Musa, the uh, late Secretary General of the Arab League, who said it was a revolution, a thawra. I think he made that pronouncement in... Uh, in February of last year. And I think by calling it a revolution, it gives one access to two useful models and analogies. One is clearly the parallels with the famous popular overthrows of the old order of France and Russia via a spark, via barricades, via a popular uprising. So you have access to that literature and I often think, I mean, poor Mr. Bouazizi, who was the spark, um, Lenin spent a great deal of time wondering when the spark that would ignite the Russian Revolution took place. He had a newspaper called Iskra, those of you who know, remember the, your Russian history. So it was a revolutionary situation, but lacking a spark. And so that's one set of questions one people who study these things ask, why did, why did this particular spark happen there in, in that particular case? But I'm not going to address that. Revolutions also um, lead to an attempt to create a new political and socio-economic order, a prolonged process that often proceeds in fits and starts and the trajectory of which it is impossible to resist. And I remember sitting in Harvard talking to my colleague Robert Danton, who knows a great deal about the French Revolution, and thinking about what it was like in the excitement outside the Bastille in uh, 1789, and not at that stage knowing that along the way there was a Napoleon or anything else was going to happen. So uh, this, this is a reminder that these are open-ended events and very difficult to predict, but one can be sure that they go on for a period of time um, and that, as I say, there will be fits and starts and false starts, and it's very unclear what kind of new order will emerge at the end of them. Perhaps it will lead to a new autocracy via the appearance of someone like Napoleon or a Lenin in, name of the, uh, in, the, in the name of protecting the revolution from itself. It also gives you access to a vocabulary that includes the notion both of revolution and reaction. So all revolutions are opposed by people who wish to return to the old status quo or who resent the revolutionary intrusion in their lives in various kinds of ways. And um, I think that was perfectly clear to the young Egyptian revolutions in Tahrir and is still perfectly clear that whether you call it the deep state or something or other, there are persons and institutions and associations connected with the old regime who would dearly like to bring the revolution to a halt and to get back to something like the old uh, traditional verities. Second, if you call it a revolution, you get something of a revolutionary program also drawn from French and American experience when those obliged to create a new order to replace the old 
um, there seems to be one model. You have a constitution and you have elections. Um, I don't quite know enough about world history to know why that should be, but it seems to be that if you call something a revolution, this is an automatic consequence. The beginning again uh, seems to require the creation of a new constitutional order, and that has something to do with democracy, uh, something to do with elections, uh, something, to bringing, some, something to do with bringing the people who made the revolution onto the political stage, if only for a moment. And there's a considerable uh, American literature, which I don't know how well it's known in England, called the constitutional moment, when people forego their sectional and um, traditional interests in order to come together to allow a constitution to be made in their name. And I think there's still something to be learned from the American political experience. If you read the first sentence of the American Constitution, it says, we the people of the United States. What right did those 25 gentlemen or whoever they were who drew up the American Constitution, how were they able to speak in the name of the people of the United States? It's something of a trick, it's something of a moment, and we are still in the middle of that. How does one choose the Constitutional Commission? How does one legitimize it? How do people agree that these particular groups of people will do it in a particular kind of way. And there, I think, as far as Egypt is concerned, there's something to be learned from Tunisia, where the, in the elections which are run by, well, won by the NAFTA, as movement as one knows, the um, parties were forced to put forward an electoral platform so that in order to be elected, they were being elected not only to the Tunisian government, but they were being elected as constitution makers and they were, thought that they were forced to reveal what kind of constitution they wanted and therefore address some of the questions that you have to think about. Are, are you a republic? How parliamentary you are? Um, uh, what are the powers of the president? What are the powers of the parliament? And so on and so on. So there has to be some form of national discussion about these enormously important issues. Uh, and then perhaps one can, I, this is an aside of course, but um, the Americans talk a great deal about democracy, but the American Constitution is the last thing that anybody seems to want to have in their own country with its enormous division of powers. It was designed, as liberal constitutions were in the 19th, uh, 18th and 19th century, to curb the power of a person perceived of as a despot. But nevertheless, the extreme separation of powers seems to be dysfunctional and therefore that you know, if one was thinking about it as an Egyptian constitution maker I think one would think about the American constitution and American support for democracy but then one would immediately abandon that particular model although I think um, a supreme court with or some constitutional court with powers of adjudicating um, legally what is in the constitution and disputes about it is probably quite a good thing the word revolution then applies to both Tunisia and Egypt and there were in both cases popular movements which were designed to create a new order. And in Egypt the process can be illuminated with parallels to previous revolutionary moments which can also be used to say something useful about what is likely to come next. 
I mean, when I'm talking about Egypt or anybody is talking about Egypt now, you're talking about something of a moving target. It's not moving quite as fast, but there was a time until a few weeks ago, if I went out in the morning and came back in the evening, quite important things had changed in Egypt and in, you have to keep up because there are so many players involved, it's so inchoate, nobody is quite sure where they're going, who's in charge and all that kind of thing, as must be true of most popular revolutions. But nevertheless, the business of answering questions about what is likely to happen is difficult and I think what I want to do is generate a few ideas out of the, the notion of revolution and out of a comparison with other revolutionary moments in Egyptian history which might be used in order to tell us something about what might or what is more likely to happen from now on. Um, just then by, um, uh, by way of a brief diversion, um, say something about the revolutionary experience supplied by uh, Midan Tahrir, which is a Midan, um, not a square, but nevertheless has played an important role. And for me, the wonderful historical irony that a square named liberation created by what turned out to be an authoritarian regime, the Nasserite regime, then was used by the people for the first time in order to overthrow um, the successor regime, the Mubarak regime, which came after the Sadat regime. <coughs> and so, um, now, where is my, if I do this, what do I see? Do I see a picture? Ah, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> there we are. Hurrah. All right. So this is the square that used to be where the British barracks were, which then, when regained from the British after the Second World War, when the troops were withdrawn, became an empty space which then became a kind of showpiece place for the, Re the Nasser revolutionaries and some of the uh, important buildings of the Nasser regime like the Arab League and so on were built in Tahrir. It was a focus for revolutionary activity. But the story of 1953, the next year when Tahrir was um, created is an enormously instructive one. There was supposed to be a festival of the revolution. The young officers in rather small cars paraded through the square. They were mobbed by the people. They didn't actually like that very much. And the next year, the festival of the revolution was held outside the Abdeen Palace. And Nasser and his friends were up on a balcony addressing the crowds. And I think you can date that symbolic moment to the time when a revolution made in the name of the people. Um, and there's a square called revolution which might have contained people but did not contain people because they were regarded as dangerous and therefore to be addressed from afar. Um, and so I find it particularly um, nice and I say a historical irony that the square has been reclaimed for the first time for the people and one can say this revolution is by the people for the people but in this place that uh, uh, in this place of called Liberation Square. Um, and then uh, it's also, and this is another historical thing, that the young woman who decided to go to the square and start the whole thing off on, on police day on the 25th of January, which itself was a historic day because police day was when the British had killed auxiliary policemen in the canal zone in January 1952. She went there on this day in order to challenge the police on police day 
and draw attention to them and was enormously successful in discrediting the police and the Minister of the Interior in no time at all in that particular place. So the desire to parade the police as important and revolutionary figures was completely delegitimized in that square at that particular moment. All right. <coughs> now, for the rest, let me do two things. To provide a chronology of important moments in the Egyptian Revolution of 2011, now um, almost a year old. I mean, two things are going on at the moment. The counting of the third stage of the Egyptian elections, but also the we're coming up to the anniversary of the, uh, the young woman who went to Tahrir on the 25th of January, 2011. So I want to say that, and then I want to look at possibilities and probable developments in 2002 via comparisons with the revolutions of 1919 and 1952. So the first important moment in the revolution of last year is when the army refuses to act partly because, perhaps because of the general sense of their own weakness. I had a real feeling following it at that time, but the generals felt that if they gave orders to the soldiers to shoot and the young soldiers to move in at that particular stage, they might have um, refused. So that reflects as much the weakness of the army as the power of the army, and it also reflects something that is less well known, which is the extraordinary power which the Obama administration has over the Egyptian army. It was enough on uh, January the 27th and 28th for either President Obama or Hillary Clinton to pick up the phone and say to the army, you must or you must not, for that to be obeyed. And that needs a bit of explanation because um, America has many armies subject to, uh, subject to its influence, the Israeli army and others, over which it seems to have extraordinarily little influence. But I think it's something to do with the fact that the, uh, the, the Egyptian army is full of dirty secrets, one of which is that it can't actually fight. It can't, if you talk to American officers, the bright star maneuvers now exist on computers. The Egyptian army is incapable of doing military maneuvers. It just doesn't have that capacity. It has other capacities. It's deeply implicit in corruption and uh, a military industrial sector. So those two things are well known to the army and the Americans and allow the Americans to blackmail the army when necessary. An incident of this kind happened only the other day when the... Uh, the, military, uh, the police came and closed down two N NGOs which were supported from the United States in Cairo. And Panetta, the American Secretary of Defense, picked up the phone and it was reversed immediately. So if you have cause for optimism, um, it is, I think, that the Egyptian army is not quite as Nasserite and quite as willing or able to move center stage in the Egyptian political process as one might suppose just because of this American influence over it. Um, then in March there was a document uh, in which it was a decision was made to hold elections to a parliament which would itself choose members of a constitutional commission from its own rank in three stages elections in November, December and January 
Egypt has 27 provinces, <coughs> nine provinces at a time. So we've just finished the third round, the counting in the third round of elections. And this led, of course, to the formation of parties and the discussion about the rules and roles and many amendments to the basic law of 1972 and, in some cases, amendments to amendments. This is a very messy business. I think when one gets to 1923 and the electoral law of 1923, it was clear that it was, to favor, it was meant to favor the worst. Um, and then, uh, sorry, it was meant to not, not uh, to, fa yes, to favor the waft, the Egyptian leading nationalist party. So elections are usually, electoral laws, when they come de novo, are usually produced by one section of the political elite in order to favor a particular outcome. And then what happens after that is you have an election, you do a bit of psychological analysis, you decide that um, it's not favoring you or it's not favoring you enough, and then the next stage is you think about redrawing constituencies or having a different system of elections or something of that kind. But in the Egyptian case, it was, a, it was subject to so much, um, so much discussion in advance. It's not quite clear what result it was supposed to have, although I think it's generally supposed that nobody imagined or large numbers of people didn't wish for a situation in which the Muslim Brothers and then the Salafis, the Noor party, would have obtained um, so much. I mean, the main features, I think, the main features of this particular um, discussion then become very technical. But I think we are at a technical moment if we're thinking about the Middle East. I mean, for a long time, you didn't know have to you didn't have to study political processes in order to understand Middle East elections or anything of that kind. They were clearly manipulated and exercises in uh, in building up support for the rulers. But uh, I'm now back where I was studying politics, philosophy, and economics at uh, at Oxford in the late 1950s when we studied rival systems of PR versus first past the post, they usually had foreign names, those scrutin le liste and scrutin the something or other. And so we're back to the nuts and bolts. And in a, in a sense, it's more boring, but I, one of my strongest arguments is that if you're in the democracy game, and this is what I tell the Americans who ask me how to do it, you have to understand these things. The difference between a parliamentary system and a republican system. The different kinds of electoral choices that you have and so on. And this has become of enormous importance. I mean, um, and uh, I know many people regard this as extremely boring. But it is, in fact, the nuts and bolts of a working democracy and something you should consider. I mean, as an anti-American aside, Americans talk about democracy, but I think they understand very little about its workings, its proper workings. I think they think elections are enough. But this business of the holding of elections and the systems you use and the, the ways in and the people who are allowed to stand for parliament and whether you have independence and whether you have lists and so on is of enormous importance to the healthy working of a democracy. So they were, they were arguing in effect about the balance between two systems, first past the post and proportional representation, whether one should have independence or party lists. And in the background were larger notions like, um, is it a parliamentary system and is, it, do you have, is parliament sovereign or where does sovereignty exist outside? You know? I mean, in a republic, the people are sovereign, but then the, uh, 
president very often interprets the wishes of the people. That's what uh, what's Ben Ali and all the, spent their time speaking in the name of a people, saying it was a sovereign thing. But now the Muslim Brothers and various other groups within the Middle East are working to a, a notion of parliamentary sovereignty. And based on what they see about British practice and so on, that if you're the largest party in Parliament and Parliament is sovereign, mm -hmm. then the Prime Minister becomes more and more important than the President. And that is a very different kind of politics than the one we have been traditionally used to in the Middle East. Um, so, as I say, in this particular case, there were arguments about all these things and there were also threats of boycott and so on, which is the ultimate threat of Democrats against a military junta or something of that kind, that we simply won't play the game of pretending that Egypt is a democracy and we will expose the army for what it is. Um, all that was going on. So it's a, it's, it's a nicely complicated um, situation of which reading the vast amounts of... Um, literature that is produced by the website Jadalia, for example, which I commend to all. Um, you learn an enormous amount about laws and practices and parties and discussions, but it's still, I still haven't quite got that story down. Um, uh, yes, and I think also one can learn, as I say, something about what will obviously be uh, the process in Egypt at the moment from what the process was in 1922 and 23 when Egypt first had multi-party contested elections under a, an agreed electoral law is that people will look now look at this and those people who oppose the Muslim Brothers and so on will want to change the law to you know, change the constituency system, change something or other and other people will look to advantage and there's not much um, stability in such a system I mean, what I long for in those moments when I think about the interests of democracy in the Middle East is that it might be possible to hold three or four elections under the same rules so that everybody believed in some kind of constituency. But this probably is not going to be the case unless one can come up with some way of binding everybody into a system whereby for five or ten years you agree not to change the rules or you only change the rules through a constitutional court or something of that kind. And then the discussions warmed up in the light of early electoral difference, experience, of course. I mean, it was still a surprise win for the Muslim Brothers and the Noor Party, the Salafis, and, um, and also the efforts of the army under the Supreme uh, Council of the Armed Forces to protect its own military interests in the name of its own self-proclaimed role as co-instigator and protector of a national revolution. So now let me just say a bit, a few words about the main protagonists in these, in these discussions. Um, the Muslim Brothers, as I say, anxious now because of their electoral popularity to assert the primacy of parliament and its right to draw up in a constitution, but in terms of their own desire to appear as moderate and their ability to address salient issues like economy, jobs, debt, etc., for which they will be called to account in only a, after only a year. So the Muslim Brothers are interested in power to Parliament, but they also recognise that if the Prime Minister is an enormously important person within the new system, then they have to deliver the goods. 
in terms of the things that matter most to Egyptians in terms of um, the economy and jobs and so on. Um, then we have the supreme command of the armed forces with an interest to secure its own continued interest, that is to protect a military interest, narrowly defined, either within the new constitutional structure or above it, so that they are not subject to civilian accounting or um, scrutiny. And they find for themselves a constitution of the fearful, people who worry about what a Muslim brother democracy might look like among Copts, Christians, among women who fear the return of a kind of Islamic misogyny as far as the women of Egypt are concerned, minorities, secularists, and so on. Um, and that's, you know, the, the system won't be at rest, I think one can argue, until both the military interest and the religious interest are somehow secured and that there is a consensus about how that might be done. So the, the military at the moment is insisting that the Supreme Council, not Parliament, will choose the next Prime Minister and that it also has the power both to appoint a committee to oversee the drafting of the Constitution in order to limit the influence of religious extremism and the right to issue super-constitutional declarations which exist over and above the Constitution and which can't be touched by the Constitution Drafting Commission itself. So. Um, there's in this jockeying for position and so on, there is a desire to have a powerful position but also to trump other people's legitimacy and demands by saying this, this council commission can do this but there are certain things it can't do and the army will secure the interests of those people who are being, whose interests are not being properly addressed by the democratic process. So one can very easily manage, imagine the kinds of arguments that are used at this particular time. So the battle lines are now drawn for the new parliament, which is to be elected by the 14th of January, very soon, of course, uh, with 498 elected members of the National Assembly and 10 appointed. That will be followed by elections to the upper house, also three, in three stages in January, February, and March. Um, 180 members elected and 90 appointed. And then on the 17th of March, these two institutions, assemblies, will meet to, to select a commission when all will have to be worked out, including the role of the president, the balance between the president and parliament, and uh, how And one hopes that this way of doing it becomes an instrument of compromise because, of course, the whole point is to have a system which allows plural views. So this has to be subject... So the, the, the electoral process and the constitutional process becomes a process also, you hope, of compromise between the various important interests uh, involved. And then we have a few other interested persons. Uh, Ama Musa is going to stand as a presidential candidate. Nobody knows what powers the president will have. Nobody, I, as far as I can tell, has begun to think about that, except they don't, need, they don't want the untrammeled powers of a Mubarak or a Nasser, that's clear. But how you, how you capture and in, entangle, as it were, and fit 
a president into this new constitutional structure is also of enormous importance. What powers he has, can he, uh, can he dissolve parliament on his own? All these kinds of things have yet to be worked out. Omar Musa's contribution to this is that I think he wants a relatively constrained presidency and he would, if he won and became the president, he would only stand for four years. So his, you know, in his bid to preempt that or make an important intervention in that particular debate is that um, it will only, it, he, the, the president should only be president for four years. I mean, normally, I think one thinks you know, the standard constitutional practice in the coming to the Middle East was that the president has two five-year terms and then stands down, of course. What happened with the presidents for life is they then changed the constitution at that stage to allow them to stand for a third and a fourth, fourth term. So they want to, you know, this is, a, this is also a matter of enormous importance. Um, so uh, that's, I think, th that's what I have to say about that. And then we hope that... Um, uh, that and that, that there are also various kinds of legitimacy being deployed. I should have said that too. About you know, there's a revolutionary legitimacy. There's a Tahrir legitimacy. There's now an electoral legitimacy that comes from being the most powerful party, and so on. All these are at play too. So it is, a, as I say, a very inchoate period. But it is also one in which there are two you know, things have to be in ideal circumstances. There have to be compromises. There has to be an agreement. There has to be, if there's to be a successful constitution which lasts and, and, and so on and so on, there will have to be agreement on all these things between the parties on terms of the rules of the political game. And then beyond that, there is some role for the United States in making sure that the military don't overplay, doesn't over whatever the scarf is, it's only half military and half old people from the security apparatus and so on, the Supreme Council, how they're fitted in, how, how a, a genuine military interest is fitted into this. All right, now let me just say a few more things in terms of constitutional parallels which might help us think about how this particularly tricky operation might go. Um, as I say, in 1923, when there was no army but a king, um, there was something of a dialectical process that you had an election it was designed to favour one group everybody gets together I mean, the different parties among themselves get together after the election talk about how it works um, you can see this very clearly between 1923 and 1925 in Egypt if you're interested in the constitutional history of that period um, and various attempts are made to manage in advance, change the constituencies, change the electoral rules in order to favour one side or another um, until it sort of settles down for a bit in 1925 until 1931. So that tells you what I think to avoid. How does one avoid that? And it tells you again what to avoid because it's clear that this particular process of changing the rules and um, trying to advantage one political party over another finally led to the discredit of the whole political class. Of course, other things happened as well, the defeat in Palestine in 1948 and so on. But um, you could say that the, the, the bad perf 
the performance of the electoral system and the behavior of the political class and the tinkering and the search for political advantage and the way in which there was no agreement on rules um, about the proper conduct of, uh, of political life that um, this finally led to the discredit of the political class and then you begin then you get the NASA period and attempt to begin again in 1952 with a new constitution and a new political single party political system and now we begin again and as I say that seems to be one of the main challenges facing Egypt at the moment that they don't go along that particular line in which the politicians discredit themselves by this search for uh, constitutional advantage um, uh, in 1952, there was the same um, attempt to draw up a constitution, and not much is known about that, except that Tariq al-Bishri, the famous legal scholar, was involved as a very young man in the 1954 Constitutional Commission. And they sat down and, in a very kind of intellectual way, said, what is a republic? They asked the sort of basic questions, what are we, what is a parliament, where is sovereignty, and so on. Meanwhile, President Nasser was writing his own constitution in the presidency, and um, that was the constitution of 1955 that he introduced. He just went completely round the existing constitution. So one could imagine a situation of that kind, too, although I think it's less likely at the moment that another constitution might appear from somewhere else within the political system, perhaps from the army, with um, a different set of aims, you know, maybe back to uh, a single party or something of that kind, a single national party or something of that kind. So now to a few words in conclusion before our um, discussion. Um, the events of a year ago were wonderful events and um, one of the many questions I think is how one keeps that moment of revolutionary enthusiasm in memory, the spirit alive, the spirit of all that alive. And for me and for most of, I suppose, all of you who watched it on uh, Jazeera and so on, it is the songs and the graffiti and the enthusiasm in Tahrir, which is what we remember. And that must be remembered. It can't. And there are various kinds of people, including, sadly, my old friend um, John Alterman, who says the real revolution is the revolution of the Muslim Brothers. No, the real revolution is what happened in Tahrir. We have to... That's the real revolution, and that's what we hang. Well, that's what we have to hang on to, and the extraordinary um, outpouring of uh, feelings that um, of being alive, of imaginative response to political problems, of brotherhood, of sisterhood, and so on. That was released. That's that's enormously important. Um, but. Uh, in some ways, those moments are also a handicap for those who want to engage in the day-to-day -day political process. If you talk to some of the young people from Tahrir, their program for the entire restructuring of the of Egyptian society and the Egyptian administration would take about 25 years to complete. It doesn't fit with any chronology of electoral chronology that one can imagine. I mean, they see the police as deeply corrupt. They see the educational system as inefficient. Um, I mean, I think Amr Musa is a bit in the same situation. He was talking about a five-year plan or something. I hadn't heard about it. 
anybody in Egypt talking about a five-year plan for a very long time. And it does cause one to remember various things that were going on in the 50s and 60s. But I think that there is, a, that, that there is this other current that was released, not into practical everyday politics, but a desire for a very much more comprehensive root and branch restructuring of Egyptian society, its political system, its legal system, and its uh, educational system. Um, uh, nevertheless, I think this is a moment where people are forced to come together to agree on a set of rules, and it is happy, I think, for the Egyptian people that revolutions in the modern world do lead to the, the notion that one must have a new constitution and that a new constitution requires one to think very deeply about government and how it should be arranged and so on and the balance between, as I say, between the president and parliament and so on. And then it has to be, those think, that thinking has to be sold back to the people as legitimate in the terms of preservations of sectional interests and this is a messy business and, and, and causes huge um, problems. Um, but it also, it should be noted, matters enormously to the Egyptian people, but it also matters enormously to the region. I mean, Nasserism spread out of Egypt and led to revolutionary command councils and Nasserite revolutions in Sudan and Libya and places like that. What one hopes is that if the Egyptians get it right and show how it can be done, that it will have an effect on the Arab states all around. Um, finally, a few more lessons. Uh, the first would be to return to this, what I hope will be a renewed interest by everybody in this room and students and so on, in the nuts and bolts of um, constitutions and electoral processes. We have to go back to that, remind ourselves how these things work and the kinds of issues that have to be decided and the kinds of, um, of, of, of compromises and structures and so on that have to be created to allow a working, plural, competitive democracy. I think there is some role for people outside um, as far as intellectual work is concerned, um, it's often has been said in Arab newspapers, of course, that the, the intellectuals aren't present. I mean, they're present in places like Syria where you can still work away at a tyrannical regime, but there isn't a very obvious intellectual leadership in Egypt, as far as I can tell, although there may be people who will um, c contradict me about that. So I think those of us who know something about Egyptian history, I think when you're, when, you have, when you're trying to start again some kind of historical anchor, some kind of knowledge of what came before, some kind of knowledge of the revolutionary hopes, of the role of Tahrir, of the electoral processes that, and, that worked in the 1920s, is useful in some kind of way, not necessarily immediately useful, but available by those Egyptians who want to make a substantial contribution to the intellectual debate about these things inside Egypt itself. And thirdly, um, 
I think one should aware, be aware of cynics and pessimists who want the Arab Spring to fail. Uh, sometimes for anti-Islamic reasons, sometimes for racial reasons, but sometimes just to show the Arabs can't manage democracy. That's one of our tasks too, to try and contradict that and make a reasoned case, as I've been trying to do, for what the Egyptians are trying to do and what they need to attend to and uh, how they might fail or how they might succeed and what the new system might look like. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much indeed for extraordinarily interesting talk, which brought out obviously not simply parallels with Egyptian history, but also uh, with the process of revolution and revolutionary change and constitution building. I mean, one of the things that I took out of that which was really quite hopeful is that as politics becomes more mundane, more banal, more petty, more focused on subclause B, uh, you never let us lose sight of the passion. Uh, that had engendered this process in the first place. And to think that that passion simply disappears uh, is, of course, one of the terrible mistakes made by those who often look at short-term advantage. So I would say that that is something that uh, I would take away from this talk very, very much indeed. But I'm happy to open the floor to people who want to make points and uh, to start the discussion, simply to say uh, when you're called upon, if you could just identify who you are and if you could wait for the microphone uh, to reach you, because the acoustics of the hall, I think, need amplification in some form or another. Uh, so, um, if I start in the middle. Thank you very much, Professor, for your lecture. Um, I was wondering Could you if just say who you are? You're uh, a student at Eugenio King's College. Um, I was wondering if you could spend some words on U.S. reaction to the Egyptian revolution. Uh, after all, Mubarak was a very important ally in the region. Thank you. Do you want to take a, a few questions uh, at once? So yes, we'll, why not? Yes, okay. so, so we'll take about three all together. Yeah. So there was a hand up there. Yeah, thank you, Professor Owen. I'm, I'm sorry, I couldn't focus on your lecture because actually our ex-finance minister from Egypt, who is a fugitive and is sentenced to 30 years and is supposed to be paying 60 billion Egyptian pounds, is sitting in the audience. I mean, he's the fugitive criminal. I really was looking forward, but I don't understand how the audacity with all the people killed and all the people who've been made miserable by this regime and this man being fugitive and coming to sit here in an audience openly. The question was... I'm sorry. Thank you, Professor Owen. Um, since uh, Mubarak's finance minister is in the hall, uh, why don't you give us your kind of... Um, analysis of on the Egyptian economy and probably what you think is the balance sheet in terms of Egypt's economy and uh, what's ha what has happened in Mubarak's time and the devastation that uh, these ministers have uh, done to the uh, to the econ economy and what the military is going to do next. Thank you. One, the last one for the three questions here. Thank you. Uh, my name is Khalid. Um, I would uh, like to hear your opinion about, um, I mean, you, you focused very much on the small details of the sausage making of the political system. But it seems to me that there is a crisis overarching the political system, which is that what the Mubarak regime left 
was a system without politics to begin with. So how do you think the various players in the field now um, trying to capture this vast empty space that used to be filled by pictorial structures of local governance, um, um, uh, a one-party system, if you like. So how do you think the various players are going to try to fill these, this vacuum, if you want? Thank you. Thanks very much. It, I mean, it, we are talking about a revolution, and it's perfectly right that uh, strong feelings should come into it. That can't be avoided. I don't want to sound patronizing about that. I won't say anything more about that. Um, the U.S. reaction, it was amazingly how quickly the Obama administration embraced the Egyptian revolution, and I don't think it, it might not have happened in the way that it did if, it, if there hadn't been this constant pressure on the Egyptian military to um, keep to a timetable, adhere to a timetable, and so on. Um, I think that you know, it was difficult for the Obama administration to avoid its own rhetoric about uh, democracy, and the support for democracy. Um, and I think for a moment, I don't know how long for, that trumped the feeling that um, Mubarak was a valued ally and there might be problems with Israel and so on. I think there was a moment of idealism, a moment of feeling that, uh, that Americans, well, imperialists are always blamed for being hypocrites, but that in this particular case, uh, talking about democracy and supporting presidents for life and dictators should not um, go on and that they should embrace the Arab Spring. And as it happened, they got considerable immediate advantage out of that in the enormous popularity in the Arab world and not much anti-Americanism going on. And they outflanked the Iranians who were slow to embrace the Arab Spring and so on. So there were a number of reasons. And I think the American press on the whole was in favor of this in a kind of rhetorical way. I mean, we believe in democracy, and this seems to be an exercise in democracy, and therefore we, we, we support it, and they offered lots of aid and lots of democracy support at that stage, I think without understanding particularly how best to do it. But I think they've done their work in preventing a military reaction um, and preventing... Um, uh, more slaughter than there might have been in the, in the, in the streets and uh, squares of Egypt. I mean, I can't give a lecture on the Egyptian economy. I just think it's probably uh, um, time for an accounting. I mean, it's not clear to me that at any time in Egyptian history since 1952, the planners and the economists have ever really sat down and said, um, this is... This is our country. We have these. We have these um, assets. We have these resources. We can do these kinds of well things. Well, we have these kinds of markets and so on, and marshaled their thinking in this particular way. It was either planned or free market um, up till now. Uh, but um, whether the ministers of the economy, some of them are known to me, of course, and uh, Samir Edwan and. Uh, Biblawi and all these people um, can make sense of that in this particular um, situation, I don't know. I mean, the problems are enormous and made worse by the revolution, as we know, and the problems with tourism, and, uh, and then we have unemployment, and um, we have all kinds of things, and maybe large numbers of Egyptians coming home from Saudi Arabia because of the Saudi policy to 
get rid of foreign workers as far as I can tell and, and use Saudis instead because that's a Saudi policy at the moment. So um, I wouldn't want to be the Minister of Economy, but I think you know, back to basics, try and work out what what you have, what you do best, where your markets are, and try and, as far as the government can do, do something in, in the direction of promoting those kinds of things. I mean, there's sort of loose talk always about becoming high-tech, but then you have to you know, you need to know about startup companies and all these kinds of things, which I don't know about. But uh, you know, if you feel that that's where you have uh, an, an internationally competitive advantage, then obviously you have to move in those directions. Um, as far as uh, the last question, um, uh, there are various forces, I think, at work. I mean, I do believe that this Turkish notion of the deep state does apply to Egypt, that there are within the uh, Egyptian administration and, the, and particularly those people who are involved with security um, alliances and so on and self-protection and a desire I mean I think these are the counter-revolutionaries who would like to go back to where it was before and I think the young people of Tahrir are quite right to believe that um, they are uh, a danger to the revolution and but they're extremely difficult to uh, they're extremely difficult to, as it were, root out because they go back so deeply. But that will be a problem. And uh, uh, as for the Muslim Brothers, I think, you know, I think that's what used to be called overdetermined. And it's clear in Tunisia and uh, Egypt and no doubt in other places that the first, uh, the first elections would be won by um, a religious group that had a national organization which were regarded as relatively uncorrupt um, didn't seem to be had been persecuted by the previous regime that comes as no surprise to anybody and I think it's also clear that it's becoming more clear that uh, whatever one thinks about Islam in countries where Muslims are present Islam has to be present in some form or other and has to be present in the political process I mean, I think I see it as much part of as tradition as part and then it is as religion per se. So Egypt has a chance. You know, it, these are the stakes are high. How do you how do you accommodate religious feeling and religious movements? How do you how do you accommodate the army? How do you accommodate the needs of a secular middle class, an entrepreneurial class, within a viable political system that? can actually deliver the goods in terms of sensible thinking about economic progress. But I wouldn't want to go further than that. We can take another So in the middle with the red. Yep. Thank you, Professor. Um, my question is, is there room for more of a, uh, a Bill of Rights or more of, um, as, as Egypt uh, traditionally does not recognize Universal Declaration of Human Rights, created its own Declaration of Human Rights. In the new constitution, do you find it, um, there's room for, for more of a, a protective rights of, of its citizens, especially women's rights? Uh, yes, Hang, oh, wait for the. yes. Uh, what do you see happening to Christians in Egypt and possibly beyond the Egyptian borders, <coughs> Christians in the Middle East? 
how do you think what is happening in Egypt will impact on the state of Israel? Three modest questions. Uh, yes, I think, I mean, I still like to think of myself as a historian, and I, we're not very good at predicting the future. Um, <laughs> it's hard work understanding what's going on now, and uh, we're probably not agreed that what went, what went on in the 19th century, but I will come on to that at the end. I mean, Bill of Rights, I think Egypt, one, Egypt, one of Egypt's natural, resor natural resources is the lawyers, who have a relatively independent tradition going back to before 1952, um, and there is a constitutional court and so on. And I, th I mean, I'm in favor, when I think about it, of an American constitution in the sense of it's a remarkably short document, as everybody knows, not many articles, and that the interpretation of the constitution is left to lawyers, and that there is a proper process for contesting and interpreting and discussing the Egyptian constitution. And I think you know, somewhere out of that a Bill of Rights would come. I mean, I don't, I think what has happened, um, what happened for some time last year was that as you approach a constitution and you look at the old constitution and then you see it, you know, number one is Egypt is a Muslim country and number two, the president needs to be a Muslim and so on. And you can spend so much time at this stage in verbiage and trying to discuss that that you don't get on with the rest. Now that has to fit in some, I'm not quite sure at what stage, but I think um, after a bit of time, after elections, when you get towards a constitution, when there has already been a discussion, I mean, I think that's where the Tunisians did so extraordinarily well. They debated all these things in advance of the first Tunisian election. So, you know, n nobody was required to agree, but at least the differences were clear and the dis there, was a, there was some kind of structure for dealing with differences. <coughs> of course, Tunisia is a much more homo homogenous country and so on, we know all that, but still. I mean, given the extraordinary importance of events, the way in which discussions are held is obviously of enormous importance. And I, I would think the, the status of the Christians come into that, um, how one thinks in terms of pluralism and identities that are not simply religious identities and those kinds of things. But, I mean, that's for the Egyptians to discuss. And they have a tradition of not, the, uh, the cops don't think of themselves as a minority. They think their identity is an Egyptian identity. They remember 1919 and the waft and things of that kind. And um, I hope but I don't know. I mean, that's how I would try and answer, answer that. I mean, as for Israel, I don't... You know, I mean, it, well, what do I think about that? I mean, you might say that one of the most difficult places in the world is the Rafa checkpoint, where you have Gaza, Egypt, and Israel all together in a relatively small... and that that is a flashpoint, and it's probably sensible that... Americans and Egyptians and Israelis and Palestinians get together to discuss that particular place. Um, but for the rest, it seems to me that the, uh, 
whatever one may think of uh, Netanyahu, the Egyptian Prime Minister, uh, the um, Israeli Prime Minister, um, <laughs> that uh, um, that Israel is missing something enormously important by re recognizing that the uh, Arab Spring or the Arab revolutions are important, but without having any real sense about how to engage with it. I wouldn't want to go further than that. But it, of course, it's, it's very interesting if you look at um, the three non-Arab countries in the Middle East, Iran, Turkey, and Israel, how they respond differently <coughs> to these events and the alliances and the problems and the challenges. At the moment, the Turks seem to be winning hands down by supporting the Arab revolutions in the way and Mr. Erdogan going around with um, delegations of Turkish businessmen and uh, um, those kinds of things. They seem to be doing that rather well, just saying we're friends and our wonderful uh, building contractors and airport constructor people are at your service. And uh, the Israelis and the Iranians seem to be messing it up entirely at this particular moment when they might have had some, some influence in the Arab world, but not. Uh, good evening, my name is Emily, I'm from the British Red Cross. Um, Sorry, could you put up your hand? I've now... Oh, thank you. Hello. Hi. Um, post the fall of Mubarak, there have been a number of subsequent demonstrations, and I was interested in what you thought the potential and limitations for um, influencing the future of Egypt is through... Um, additional demonstrations. Thank you. Nadim Shahadi from Chatham House. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Roger, why do you think the American administration was so slow in having a coherent position on Syria, whereas it formulated a position on Egypt rather quickly? Back. Yes, uh, just uh, uh, good evening. Um, just on your um, original uh, qu um, uh, quotation about the American um, founding fathers, um, throughout history, the rule of thumb is that who wins rules. They happened to win the colonials at that particular time. If you come to our um, part, those parliament, parliamentarians, they themselves, after King Charles was beheaded in 1649, you had what you had gentlemen farmers, really, that took over here and began to rule in parliament. Um, they had experience, of course, but you know, someone has to govern. I'm just asking what your thoughts are about Egypt now. One more. One just here? Oh, the microphone disappeared. <laughs> there was something just here a moment ago. Hang on, there's a, a microphone needed down the bottom. Ah, the, well, because the, the rest of the hall might not be, we could hear you, but maybe not the rest. <laughs> sorry, just here. 
Thank you very much for the lecture. Um, I'm actually not feared from the role of Muslim Brotherhood in making the Constitution, either it will be democratic or not, or based on people's will. I'm more feared from the way the American administration is engaged or is going to be engaged in the process of the Egyptian Constitution um, making and um, in the process of democratization. Do you, do you think that the American administration learned from the previous experience and the failure of their intervention and in democratization in the whole Middle East, especially in Egypt? Thank you. Uh, as far as more demonstrations are concerned, um, the revolution has not been demobilized, and I think the Tafria part of it is still enormously important, although um, this is also new. It's very difficult to think through, um, except in kind of abstract terms, that the, the Tafria and the ability to go back and have demonstrations, even if you can't have them in Tafria or but to have demonstrations somewhere and in Egyptian cities is a reminder that it is a people's revolution and that people, you know, people have a right to demonstrate and have a say about these things are present. Although I assume in two or three years that particular kind of politics and the legitimacy that comes from having demonstrations in particular places will begin to wind down. I mean, we probably, there's some probably historical parallels in other revolutions where in France or somewhere like that in the late 18th century where one can see the winding down of revolutionary fervor but still playing a particular point and representing something very important in the new order, although nobody quite knowing how it should be, um, how it can be incorporated. I mean, I tried to think of the, you know, the two things. If, if you're a revolutionary and you believe in the deep state and you believe that the previous regime was wholly corrupt, then your project must be to create new institutions which are the very opposite of those you've overthrown. And maybe the political system is almost the easiest of that. Reforming the Egyptian educational system or the legal system or the uh, police, after all, and torture and all that kind of thing is going to be much more difficult and those two forces have to be accommodated. But then, you know, that is the whole point of democracy as one understands it in general, that it is a system of compromises and uh, accommodations and learnt practices. And if you think of Lebanon and its system, I mean, the, it works only because over 50, 60, 70 years there has been a practice of accommodation. It doesn't always work. There was a civil war and so on. But you have to learn these things. You can see that in Iraq at the moment. I mean, they haven't learned the politics of sectarianism that that, and the ways of accommodation and so on. Um, but that's something you have, to, you have to do, just as particular people have to learn how to put forward their interests in a particular kind of way. I mean, Egyptian women, as I understand, are an extremely tough, well-organized bunch of people, they're public women who you see, but they will have to learn better how to protect their interests as they see them. I mean, that's of the nature of democracy. You know, I think one can argue that uh, 
women's rights and minority rights were better protected under the, under the dictators. But at a great cost. The dictators have gone, so you have to find some other way of doing that, and that means you, know, you have to go out and get support and do the kinds of things, have pressure groups and all the kinds of things that uh, um, we know you have to do. As far as America and Syria is concerned, I think, the Ameri I think the Obama administration, A, didn't know what to do about Syria, and certainly B, didn't want to engage in an yet another policy initiative in the Middle East. It was overextended. It was trying to cope with, it was trying to make sense of the withdrawal from Afghanistan and Iraq. It, it was willing to make um, rhetorical support, but it actually didn't have any particular sense of what to do, and I think they got themselves in a limb, out on a limb by being as strong as they did and saying Bashar should leave without having any, F, any way to actually engineer that. Um, and uh, you know, my own personal feeling is that maybe the Russians have a better idea, that you institute some real <coughs> process of transition rather than simply wishing that somehow Bashar will disappear. I mean, the last thing that anybody thinks is that the uh, Alawi strongmen are suddenly going to vacate and fly off to Dubai or somewhere other. They're going to sick and fight it out. So given that, I think, unless you have a reasonable way of supporting um, the anti-regime forces in Syria in a way that doesn't lead to a bloodbath, it would seem to me you, they have to be more creative about it. And the, you know, they have very, the Obama administration is listening to its very good ambassadors in these places, and I'm sure there are lots of ideas kicking around without them necessarily being voiced at the moment. And it is an election year too, of course. Um, and, oh, and as, uh, about the, um, about constitutions, I mean, it's true that the, that the constitutional drawers were a pretty self-appointed bunch, but there was a long tradition of um, thinking about representative government in the colonies in Massachusetts and in Pennsylvania. Huge numbers of local newspapers. Everybody seems to be, I mean, literate people seem to be acquainted with the ideas of John Locke and so on and, and thinking about the state. So there was... An enormous, and then there were the state constitutions. Many of the constitutions makers had already drawn up the Constitution of Virginia and places like that. So there was a constitutional practice and some form of public debate which made those people say, We the people. There was some sense. It wasn't just self appointed. They, they knew that they were speaking on behalf of reasonably well defined constituencies within the North American colonies who had been thinking about things of this kind. And, uh, and uh, you know, if one looks to something, I think Tunisia is a good example of where you know, the Tunisians are so French that they, they borrow their constitution making and their ideas of politics and electoral politics as much from France as from their own traditions. But nevertheless, there is a kind of sense of how these things work. Um, the 
um, um, Americans and I don't, uh, I don't think anybody need worry about American interference in the, elect in the constitution making process and the electoral process uh, not from this administration anyway the last thing they're going to do is to make any attempt to dictate to the, United, uh, to, to the Egyptians what kind of constitution they're going to have that's not on the table at all their role as I say is just to keep the military under some sort of control I think we have time for perhaps three more questions. I know there's somebody in a yellow shirt over there, but still want to ask a question or not? You had your hand up before. Um, my question is about, um, in the beginning of your lecture, you discussed the revolutions that took place in Egypt in the 1950s. What ideological characteristics can you sort of draw between that revolution and the one that took place um, last year? And um, you referred to the completion of the revolution and how it's sort of, some people are saying that it's more swayed toward the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, how would you evaluate the completion of the revolution in Egypt? Um, what, what was it and what did it turn into? Hello, my name is Stefan Smanowitz. I'm, I'm a journalist. I was just out in Tahrir Square a few weeks ago. Um, I was just wondering about uh, SCAF and, and the situation, the fear, the, the fear that they may have, that they may be held to account for what's been going on, whether there's a need for a sort of truth and reconciliation, um, an amnesty of some kind of thing. Also, it might not be within your um, um, knowledge or remit, but just in terms of the, the economic minister who we have in the hall, um, do you know anything about whether he's... Um, an exile? Is he fled? Is he is he wanted for questioning? Or <laughs> I think you should ask him. <laughs> I'd love to. <laughs> to the second part. And the question over there. Uh, my question is about Europe. It is the first neighbor for the uh, uh, Arab countries and the Arab Spring revolutions. So could you explain what are the reaction at the beginning and now? What are they supposed to do? What are we supposed to expect from them? Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thanks very much. Uh, the, the revolution of 1952, I think it, it was a revolution against the British, but it was also a revolution against large landowners and, a and an, uh, an ancien regime which had many of the characteristics of other ancien regimes and therefore it created a vacuum for a while it created for a couple of years it created a desire to for the, the uh, articulate persons constitutional lawyers to try and create a, no a, a new constitution and as I say they tried to do that and then they were preempted by uh, Nasser himself for reasons that are not sufficiently well understood partly because the Nasser papers and the Egyptian state papers and so on do not exist I mean you simply cannot work out you can talk to Egyptians um, Khalid Moyadeen and people like that who were around at the time but you don't get very good answers to that um, so the process by which um, then Colonel Nasser drew up uh, his own constitution. Uh, I know that that happened, but I don't can't say very much uh, more about that. I mean, I think I understand the process whereby the, uh, the the officers, the free officers who made the revolution, decided the future of what they called their revolution 
was best off in the hands of one person and that one person. They identified as NASA. But that's an appropriation of a revolutionary event which became a coup and then it was a revolution and then it went back to being something more like uh, military rule again, which is one of the many. I mean, that's the Napoleonic outcome, I suppose. Um, that the revolution is precious, it needs to be protected, the people don't really understand it, it has great dreams which are going to take 20 or 25 years to fulfill and therefore it can't be subject to the vagaries of politics which has anyway delegitimized itself. I mean, these, these kinds of things, I think, um, come to the fore at such a stage. Um, the SCAF, the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces, isn't entirely armed, isn't entirely soldiers. Um, it's also security people and other people. Um, it doesn't seem to me to have any great coherence and consistency. It makes, it makes contradictory ideas. It tries one idea and, and then another idea. I mean, it's not a coherent ruling body. But somewhere in the middle of that is presumably two things that have been mentioned. I mean, one is there is a military interest. It wants, to, it wants a budget. It wants a say in defining Egypt's enemies, like any military. It wants control over its command structure. It wants to continue with its military interest. That's a military interest. And therefore, it also probably there are dark secrets of one kind about, you know, of which is the most obvious, who gave the order to fire on the Tahrir demonstrators if that wasn't President Mubarak, who did that and why, why did that happen and so on. So it has its own secrets to protect. And that, I mean, I see it as, as an incoherent, fearful body but at the and trying to think about how best to look at its to protect itself from civilian surveillance and accountability in a new Egypt where it will have to make some compromises and run, I mean, rather unfortunately, by another very old man um, who, if I was an American, I would insist immediately that Field Marshal Tantawi stepped down and was replaced by... I mean, it's absurd that a revolution should, made by very young people should be... Much of the fate of it should be in the hands of yet another very old, old of course, not elected man who should have retired years ago. Um, as for Europe, I think that it, you know, Europe is full of goodwill towards the Middle East and would like to give it lots of money, I think. But as we know, Europe doesn't have a... a, a, a there is, there is um, whatever her name, Lady Ashton. Is she Lady or Mrs.? Lady Ashton. Um, who tries to have a foreign policy. But there's also... You know, there's a feeling that if Egypt really got going and billions poured in to any of these countries, there would be all kinds of contracts and so on going. And so there's competition between various bits of the European Union. I mean, I think once Egypt settles down and has some framework for absorbing aid, there will be quite a lot will come from Europe, partly because... Um, they believe in Egyptian democracy and partly because they see an advantage in the usual kind of way. I'm, I'm not the best person to talk about Europe because I don't live in Europe anymore. I'm it from the United States. Roger, thank you very much. I think before we, we thank Roger, I just wanted to um, say that uh, next week on Tuesday the 17th, 
Uh, there's another lecture in the series uh, hosted by the Middle East Center by uh, Wada Hanfar, the former Director General of Al Jazeera. And he'll be talking about uh, engaging political Islam and the realities of the new Middle East. But before we, you go, I want you to thank Roger very much indeed on our behalf for not only an extraordinarily interesting lecture, but also for uh, a question and answer session in which he was expected to both predict the future of the Egyptian economy, uh, the American relationship, uh, Israel's future in the region, and uh, the reasons for the Egyptian minister, former Minister of Finance's uh, presence in London. So uh, this was uh, something which I think we should thank him for very much indeed.